Second Kings chapter 11. Well, we've gone through the tumultuous events in chapters 9 and 10 where Jehu establishes his reign in the northern kingdom. He deposes the family of Ahab, and now he's the king there. But we are kind of left with a question after we kind of resolve that. What happened in the kingdom of Judah after Jehu killed their king? And so chapter 11 now is going to explain the aftermath of how that death affected the kingdom of Judah. Now, Azariah, the former king of Judah who Jehu killed, his mother is a woman named Adaliah. She is Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. And so she decides to imitate Jehu's playbook by exterminating the line of David so she can seize the throne. And so the writer in chapter 11, he shifts his account back to the southern kingdom to show the exiles. Remember, he's writing to the exiles in Babylon. All these events have long occurred to the people he's writing to. He he shifts his account back to the southern kingdom to show the exiles in Judah how God dealt with Adaliah and how God preserved David's line. He writes this here to show the exiles and us that even in the worst circumstances, God still keeps his promises. To show the exiles that it is possible to renew our relationship with God even when we've gone astray. So chapter 11, we begin in verse 1, and it just gets right to it. It says, and when Adaliah, the mother of Ahaziah saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons which were slain, and they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Adaliah, so that he was not slain. And he was with her hid in the house of the Lord for six years, and Adaliah did reign over the land." So in verse 1, it gives us the brutal facts that Adaliah, when she realized her son, the king, was dead, that she arose. She stepped into that gap of power and destroyed. Uh, That word destroyed is the same exact word used for Jehu's extermination of Ahab's descendants. She destroyed the seed royale. That phrase there refers to all of the male members of David's line, the royal line. Now, there was not a ton of them left. Jehu already killed 42 of them in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 14. Her husband, um, er, years earlier, he had killed all of his brothers when he took the throne. So that had eliminated all the cousins and everything like that. It, they never came to be. They were all killed. 2 Chronicles 22.1 also tells us that many of her other sons had been killed by marauding Arabs. Since her son Ahaziah was only 22 years old when he died, he hadn't reigned but for just a short time, then these male descendants that she kills here would be her only surviving grandkids, and they would be kids. They would be very young, those who would be too young to have traveled north to go visit their cousins up in Israel. This is an incredibly wicked woman, every bit as ruthless as her mother Jezebel. Um, She's way beyond just falling short of some of God's standards. I bring this up because this is an important lesson on the topic of the danger of compromise. The reason she's in this position to do this is because of King Jehoshaphat's compromise. You say, King Jehoshaphat, but God said he was a godly king. He was a godly king. Jehoshaphat loved the Lord very much. He was a good man. But he made peace with Ahab, and he sealed that treaty with a marriage between his son, who would be the heir, and this woman, Ahab's daughter, Adaliah. And I'm sure that Jehoshaphat probably thought to himself, what could go wrong? I mean, my people are walking with the Lord. I'm a godly man. I'm influencing my kids. How could one woman's influence change our nation that much? But that's the problem with compromise. I think I mentioned this quite a bit on Sunday morning, but uh, not this Sunday morning, but when we were going through First John, the danger of that leaning on our own understanding. Uh, the concept is, is that anytime we lean on our own understanding, we're making decisions that don't have all the facts. For example, you might be thinking to yourself, we'll make this compromise, and it's, it's not that big a deal, and it will allow us to do this, this, and this. Maybe it's your business, or maybe it's your family. And and you think it's not that big a deal. But the problem is you're, you're making decision-making based on the facts in front of you, but the facts in front of you don't account for the fact that God has supernaturally provided for and blessed you and protected you, right? 
So when you do the math and you go, well, this won't affect us that much, you're discounting the fact that, yeah, but part of that reason things are going so well isn't just this, this, and this. It's because God's hand is there. And what happens now if you bring in this compromised person or this compromised situation into that equation, and now all of a sudden the Lord's hand can't touch it in the same way? Well, now it's, you're not doing the correct math is the problem. You're missing information because that's exactly what happened after just a few decades of her influence. The nation went completely downhill. Joseph's son, Jehoram, didn't walk with the Lord. He turned away from the Lord. And then his grandson, Ahaziah, became a carbon copy of Ahab. And now as a result, Adaliah threatens to undo God's promises to David. Because God had promised David they were not failed to sit a man on, on the throne forever and ever. Now, the throne hasn't always been occupied by a son of David because there hasn't been a king in Israel for many, many centuries. But the line of David was steadfast and sure all the way up to Messiah. So God kept his promise, and that man will, he's still around, and he will reign forever and ever. God kept his promise. But this was very much a a wicked thing, a plan of the enemy that Adaliah was a part of. That is, is part of the equation that I'm sure Jehoshaphat didn't think to himself, you know, well, if I make this decision, I'm going to give an open door to the enemy to destroy God's promise. But that's exactly what he had done. So this is a good lesson in the danger of compromise. It's never worth it. Small compromises have big consequences. Leaning on my own understanding might seem to work, but it says if we trust in the Lord, He'll make our path straight. So when we lean on our understanding, that means the road will become crooked at some point. It's going to go off track. I mean, for a while it might seem okay, but whatever you gain will even be, it'll be worse than lost at some point in the future. It's never worth it. Now, learning this lesson, I think, is especially important if you're a parent, because you can teach your kids the truth, but if you've compromised your behavior, that will be the lesson that sticks. Always. It will always be the lesson that sticks. You can tell them to their blue in the face and say, this is what's true, this is what's right, this is how we're supposed to do things. But if they see you living this way, that's the lesson that will stick. That's the lens of interpretation that will be there. So this is why we cannot allow compromises, especially if you're a parent. Now, one of the writer's goals for this book the whole book is to show the exiles that God always keeps His promises. Well, this is going to put God's promise to the test because she's plans to wipe out the entire line. This is indeed a horrible situation, and it looks like the enemy has won. But no enemy is a match for the Lord, and God is always faithful. So verse 2, look at what happens. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Jehoram, the sister of Ahaziah, took Joash the son of Ahaziah and stole him from among the king's sons which were slain. Now, Jehosheba, I don't know if she's Adaliah's daughter. So she's the sister to King Ahaziah. I'm sorry, not daughter. I don't know if she's Adaliah's direct granddaughter or whatever from another. You know, the problem is, is that these kings had multiple wives. So I don't know who, what, what line, you know, she comes through. So but she's a granddaughter, and she's the sister of Ahaziah. I'm sorry, not a granddaughter. She is a daughter, but I don't know if she's uh, Adaliah's daughter. And it tells us in Second Chronicles 22.11 that she was married to the high priest at that time, a godly man named Jehoiada. And so she goes in, and she steals little Joash away. The word stole actually means to kidnap. What had happened was is Adaliah, under the guise of pretty much saying, I got to get all the kids together and we got to pick a new king. That's how she rounds them all up. When she receives news that her son is dead, she rounds up all the grandkids, likely under the pretense that I have to choose who's going to be the most fit to be the next king, but her plan is to kill them all. So her daughter, Jehosheba, or the king's daughter, her husband's daughter from another wife, whoever she is, she suspects foul play here and she snatches Joash from the group. Now, I know that my first thought was, why didn't you take all the kids? But Joash is barely a year old. He would be the easiest to hide. And I'm pretty sure she thought to herself, I can't get all these kids out. It tells us in verse 2 that, and they hid him 
even him and his nurse in the bedchamber from the queen, from queen, the queen mother Adaliah. They here leads me to believe that her husband Jehoiada was a part of the plan, not just her by herself. The nurse here, this poor woman, she's responsible for feeding the child, and she's caught up in this coup attempt. She's likely rounded up with everyone else, and so they get her out, they get Joash out, and they hide them. It says in the bedchamber. It's not the child's bedchamber. It's not even Jehoshaphat's bedchamber. The word here refers to the place in the palace, the room in the palace where they kept the beds and the mattresses and the covers, where they stored them. Nobody lived there. So they took her and the child into this place that nobody ever went to, and they hid them there for a bit. But you're not going to be able to hide a a toddler and his nurse in the palace storage closet forever. And so they eventually take him to a place that Adelaide would never come to, verse 3. And he was with her, the, the nurse who was still needed, with her hid in the house of the Lord for six years, the temple. That's a place Adelaide never went. She's an idolater. Now, there weren't any living quarters in the temple, but Solomon constructed tons of side chambers for storage and for meetings. It would not be difficult to convert one of those to a living space. Now, Adaliah, like her mother, Jezebel, was loyal to Baal. When her husband Joram became king, he built a temple to Baal in Jerusalem. Adaliah's sons broke into God's temple and stole the tools for worship so they could be used in the new temple of Baal. So it's not just that she didn't go to temple. At the present time, when this is being discussed, what the events we're talking about, the Lord's temple is run down and it's less used. When we get to Second Chronicles, we will study about how Joash repaired the temple because it was in such disrepair. So this was the ideal place to keep Joash safe. So as a result, Adaliah succeeds taking the throne, and Adaliah did reign over the land, it says, for those six years. Adaliah becomes the first to rule over Judah, who is not a descendant of David, but her reign does not last long. Verse 4, it says, in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers over the hundreds with the captains and the guard and brought them to him into the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord, and he showed them the king's son. So the Rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guard. The word different captains, it, it, it's the word in the Hebrew, the Cherethites. Now, if you recognize that word, that's because that were two groups of people that were extremely loyal to David. They weren't necessarily even Israelis. They were Gentiles, some of them, not all of them, who were extremely loyal to David and became his personal bodyguard. These guys had stayed loyal to the line of David throughout the years. They had a fierce loyalty to David. When Absalom seized the throne, they were one of the groups that stuck with David, even though it meant they might die. And so they fled with David and stuck with him. So they were incredibly loyal to David's family. And so Jehoiada, six years later, when Joash is seven years old, he decides to bring them into the secret that David's line still lives. Now, Second Chronicles 23.2 also tells us that he invited the family leaders of the tribe of Judah and also all the Levite, the Levitical leaders. So he's bringing in all of the influential people in the tribe and then the personal bodyguard to the family of David. And he brings them in and he makes a covenant with them, makes them swear an oath He wants to confirm their faithfulness to the Lord. And do you still believe that God made a promise to David? Yes. Are you still loyal to David? Yes. You still loyal to the Lord? Yes. Swear, promise, make a covenant with me that you'll not betray the line of David or betray the Lord. No, we won't. All right. Well, then I have someone I want to show you. He gets their commitment first. Some might say, well, this was a big risk by Jehoiada. Why expose Joash to this huge mob. It's not like you could stop them if they decided to kill him, if they were loyal to Adaliah. But I don't, I don't think this was a big risk. Adaliah would not be loved by the people of Israel. She would be considered a foreigner because Jewish people to this day still count a person's Jewishness to come from their mother. She was not from a Jewish mother. She, her mother's Jezebel. She would be considered a Gentile. So she would not be considered one of them. So I don't think she was a popular queen. Joash, on the other hand, did have a Jewish mother. I think this was a very safe play by Jehoiada to get the ball rolling to dethrone Adaliah. And so it works. Having secured their commitment, he lays out his plan. Verse 5, 
And he commanded them, saying, This is the thing that you shall do. A third part of you that enter in on the Sabbath shall even be keepers of the watch of the king's house. And a third part of you shall be at the gate of Sur, a third part at the gate behind the guard. So shall the you keep the watch of the house, that it be not broken down. This is a little confusing at first. I, I had to kind of really read it like about 75 times to figure out what's going on. But the idea here is 2 Chronicles 23 tells us that five commanders were present, which means at least 500 soldiers would end up committed to this cause. So they divide them into five groups, which is how they were naturally already broken up. And he says, three of you, three of the five divisions, you're going to head to the palace, and we'll get to this in a second, but two of the five divisions, you're going to go to the temple. And the idea is, is that it's going to be during the Sabbath is when we're going to do this. There would be a change of guard once the Sabbath started, and that way it wouldn't look odd to all of a sudden see three divisions enter the palace and guard all the exits, and two divisions go to the temple. It would be perfectly normal for a changing of the guard to occur here. So three divisions would come in to replace the two that were leaving. The first part of the, of the three divisions that were coming in, it says they would be the keepers of the king's house. In other words, the first third would stay inside the palace to keep an eye on things there. The next group would be at the gate of Sur, the next uh, uh, hundred soldiers. This is, the gate of Sur, it means the foundation gate or the horse gate. We aren't told where this is, but it must have been one of the exits from the palace because he wants it watched. Thirdly, he says, the other third group will watch the gate behind the guard, which would be the, the gate behind the guard. It's the area in the back of the palace where the royal message runners would, would go out and do what they needed to do. It was also directly across from the temple. So all of these areas, he says, I want you to watch all of them, it says in verse 6, so that it, the house be not broken down. Literally, it means the, the house be not able to repulse or ward off what we're doing. Basically, Jehoiada didn't want anyone going in or coming out of the palace once the guard change occurred, because it was at that time he's going he's gonna to spring his plan. He's going to bring out Joash and have a coronation. So normally the, the guards who would be leaving their duty, the other two groups, they would head home or go to their barracks or whatever, but Jehoiada tells them, no, you guys are going to come to the temple, verse 7. And then two parts of all of you that go forth on the Sabbath, you're leaving the palace, even they shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord about the king. And you shall compass the king. You're going to surround the king about. Every man with his weapons in his hand, and he that comes within the ranges, let him be slain. And you be here with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. So I think it's interesting that he's already calling Joash the king, even though Joash has never been crowned. He doesn't recognize Adaliah's rule. He doesn't. In his mind, Joash is already the king. Now, when it says here, if anyone comes into the ranges, kill him, the range there refers to the, uh, the whole temple mount platform. The, the actual temple building was much smaller than the, the area that was called the, the temple mount or the temple area. I actually found out we're going to get to go on the Temple Mount this year when we go on our Israel trip. So that's a little bit new. We've never done that before. So pray that there's no like protests going on and we can go up there. But the temple building was constructed on its raised platform and the platform was open air. Everybody could see into it. It had a small wall on the outside, but you could see into it. It contained the altar of sacrifice, all the other furniture used for the sacrifices. The entire platform was considered the temple, even though a large part of it was open air. It wasn't an actual building. And he just basically says, if anybody steps onto this platform, kill him. Don't let anybody get to the king. You go wherever Joash goes, and if anybody steps up here, kill him. So Jehoiada has this two-pronged plan to keep anyone from the palace to coming to see what's going on in the temple, and then to keep anyone who means harm to Joash from getting to him in the temple. Okay? Verse 9. And the captains over the hundreds did according to all things that Jehoiada the priest commanded. They took every man his men that were to come in on the Sabbath, and with them that should go out on the Sabbath, and they came to Jehoiada the priest. So the plan goes off. Everything looks right. Verse 10. And the captains over hundreds, to the captains over the hundreds did the priest give King David spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. Levites were also committed to this. Second Chronicles tells us this. The king's author doesn't mention it. Levites would be unlikely to be armed. They would not be unlikely to be walking around as soldiers. So Jehoiada takes the spears and the shields that David dedicated to the temple, and he gives them to the Levites, and he tells the captains, put them wherever you think is best. 
The plan goes into effect exactly as Jehoiada plans. Verse 11, and the guard stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, round about the king from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple, along by the altar and the temple. He's completely surrounded. It was time to reveal Joash to the people. Verse 12, and he brought forth the king's son, and he put the crown upon him, and he gave him the testimony. Testimony, what is that? Well, that's a written copy of Moses' law. Look at Deuteronomy 17 with me. Jehoiada is one of my favorite people in the Bible. He doesn't get a lot of mention because his, his appearance is very short in the Scriptures. It's very small. But man, I love this guy's attitude. Deuteronomy 17, and let's look at verses 18 through 20. God says, when you, when you have a king someday, he says, you can't do this, 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 and this. That's the verses that come before these. But then he says in verse 18, this is what he does need to do. In verse 18, he says, and it shall be, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, it shall be when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Whenever a new king stepped into that role, he was required by God to come down to the tabernacle or now the temple and get a copy of the law of Moses from the scrolls the Levites would use to teach the people. And then it would be his responsibility, not someone else, but his responsibility to write the entire law of Moses, his own personal copy, and then he'd return the scrolls. And then he was to read his own personal copy every day so that he wouldn't become prideful and think that the law of God didn't apply to him because he was the king. That he would not depart from God's commandments left or right, but he would be a good ruler and a good leader. David, I don't know if, if previous kings ever did this because we don't ever see this ritual occurred in, with previous kings. Maybe they did and they just didn't mention it. I don't know if any of them did. David references God's word a lot, so he likely did it. But whether any kings did this or not before today, this shows us how serious Jehoiada is about if we're, we're going to do this, it's like a fresh start for us. We're going to do this right from now on. We got into this mess because we strayed so far from God's word. We're going to do this the right way. And so he hands jo Joash the tent for anything else, hands him the word of God. And he, he says, there it is, son. You're going to make your own copy and you're going to read this every day. Doing things God's way, exactly as God says it, it says it should be done, it matters. It does matter. Do you take that seriously? God's Word. I'm blown away. This book, this book fascinates me. Fascinates me because there's times I don't want to even touch it. Right? I'm an avid reader, and when I get a book, I want to I tackle it. I never look at a book and go, do I have to? Except this one. Isn't that interesting? I'll sit down, I'll read my Bible, and I'm so blessed. And then the very next day, I have a great day, and God's hands on my life, and then the very next day, the Lord's like, hey, let's spend some time together. And I'm like, do I have to? My flesh doesn't want to. I can put it all. I can, I can have a thousand other things that are important and need to get taken care of beside from reading this. And somehow convince myself, I don't, I'll be okay. I can do that tomorrow. Do we, do we realize how amazing it is that God has spoken to us? I mean, I'm just going to throw this out here, guys. Like, we can say whatever we want. We believe this, we believe that, we believe this. But you've never seen Jesus. You weren't there when he died on the cross. Everything you know about him and everything that led up to that, why he's the one who's supposed to do that, it comes from this. 
The fact that God said, I'm not going to leave them in the dark. I'm going to speak to them. In Deuteronomy, I don't know the chapter off the top of my head. In Deuteronomy, though, it says, he, he, Moses asked a question. He goes, what's the greatest miracle? I mean, you're talking to a people who saw the Red Sea parted. You're talking to a people who saw the plagues. They've seen all these things. They were there at Mount Sinai. And this is what Moses said. The greatest miracle was that, that God would speak and men would live. That God would speak to us and we'd be alive to carry on afterwards. God Almighty, the one who created the universe, he loves us. And he's, he's given his love letter to us. He's spoken to us. I read this thing, and there are days I'm like, I'm doing it as an act of obedience. I'm like, I'm tired, and my, my, my flesh doesn't want to do this. And I sit down, and I, 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 all this, sometimes I even look, I'm like, oh, man, I'm, I've got a genealogy today. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and then you start reading, and the Lord just starts speaking. You'll be reading, and all of a sudden, you know, like, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. Oh, and he's the one that went and did this, this, and this, and this. And all of a sudden, the Lord, boom. He's like, hey, Will, where are you at with, with your life? What are you doing? Like, if, if your genealogy was written out right now, what would it say? Ooh. Well, Lord, I'm doing this, but I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this like that guy did. I can't even pronounce his name, but, but you put him there. And you said a little tiny tidbit about what he did so I could read it today. I'm blown away. And there'll be those moments when I'll just get really emotional. I'm just like, Lord, there's a part of me that didn't even want to do this. Like I was tired and had all these other things I was thinking about and things I knew I needed to take care of. And then Lord, here I am. And I open it up and you just speak to me. And you do it again and again and again. This is so valuable. It's, it's such a treasure. I, I don't want my Christianity to ever become something different than a relationship with, with Jesus. And any relationship is only as meaningful as the, the time spent together and the communication that's going on. This is his communication to us. Being faithful, it's not about making sure I fulfill a list of do's and don'ts. I could do all that and still miss the mark of having a relationship with the Lord. That being said, the opposite of being lazy with my obedience is not right either, though. So, what are we after then? Abiding in Jesus. In John 15, verses 9 and 10, it's really simple. Jesus says this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus had this amazing relationship with the Father, right? Like he talks about it a lot. And he says, now you need to have that with me. I want you to have that with me. So are you abiding in Christ by cultivating an obedient heart? Are God's words important to you? Do you take the time to find out for yourself what he says, or do you just kind of, I know the easiest part is, well, let me Google what somebody said about that, or let me read my, and I'm not saying it's bad to read the, the daily bread or anything like that. That's great, or your devotional, whatever. That, I'm not saying that's bad. But do you, do you open that book up and just say, Lord, teach me? Maybe you're thinking, I, I try that. It's really hard, though. Okay, pray this one prayer. That's what I encourage everybody who's struggling reading their Bible. Pray this one prayer. Say, God, give me one thing I can apply to my life today. And then here's the one rule that goes with that prayer. Don't stop reading till you get the one thing. Okay? I promise if you do those two things, it will change how you read your Bible. I had a gentleman once I was talking to, and he's like, I just don't hear from God. I don't hear anything. And so I gave him that advice. <laughs> and he's like, well, what if it's like, you know, three chapters? I said, do it if it's 12 chapters. He's like, okay. 
It was so cool. He called me later that night. He goes, it worked. It worked. Took six chapters, but it worked. <laughs> the point is, is just like any relationship, you got you to gotta spend time. You have to get to know somebody before what they're saying makes sense to you. Well, he gives them the testimony, and then in the very end of the verse, it says, everybody starts to whoop it up. It says, and they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. Now, remember, this is written in King James, Elizabethan English. That's what they said then. But back then, they would say, let the king live. May the king live forever. The idea behind this phrase is it was a, an official blessing. Or is that saying, we wish you to have a long and a prosperous reign. Now, they're clapping their hands, they're hooting and hollering, they're shouting, let the king live. Even if it was just the family leaders, the Levites, and the soldiers, that would generate enough noise for Adaliah to possibly hear it. But based on the later verses, we see here that there's more people here. The actual just regular Israelis are there, which is why most Bible students believe that Jehoiada picked to do this during a Sabbath that occurred during one of the big feasts. And if that's the case, the temple would be full of faithful worshipers who were therefore faithful to David's line. And that many people shouting and clapping would definitely catch Adaliah's attention. So verse 13, when Adaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, see now we're mentioning the people, she came to the people into the temple of the Lord. Now what's interesting is remember what Jehoiada said, he said, don't let anybody come in, don't let anybody go out. Well, there was one exception. They was allowed to leave. Her. She can come and go because we're going to get her. So she comes down. They let her through. And, you know, one would think that she would kind of get wise on looking around and go, no one's else walking around. Like no one else is walking around the palace. Why am I walking alone down this thing? Perhaps... She thought, well, it's just Sabbath stuff. You know, everybody's home. Perhaps she was just that arrogant. When she gets there, she sees something that shocks her. Verse 14, and when she looked, behold, which the word behold gives you that idea of what? She was just shocked. Behold, the king stood by a pillar as the manor was, and the princes and the trumpeters were by the king, and all the people then rejoiced and blew with trumpets. The pillar there, if, if you remember how the temple was constructed, Solomon had these two large columns built. One was named Boaz, and I don't remember the name of the other one off the top of my head. But th these two large pillars, and it mentions that it was the custom, the manner, that the king would, when he would come to the temple, that he would have a spot by one of these pillars. You see, that porch there, that was the closest a non-priest could get to the holy place without going in. And it, so it was a special spot reserved for the king. And while I doubt Adaliah's husband or her son had ever been to that spot during the temple worship, she would have seen her father-in-law Jehoshaphat stand there on many occasions, and she would know the significance of that spot. And so when she sees a guy with a crown on his head over there, and she sees all the tribal leaders there. It mentions the princes. That means the tribal chieftains. When she takes in the scene, she realizes it's a coronation, and I was not invited, which means it's a conspiracy. And so that's what she shouts. It says, then Adalia tore her clothes, and she cried, treason, treason. The word means conspiracy. But no one hears her, or no one that cares, because she's all alone. There's no one to respond to her cries. She's neatly trapped between the soldiers in the temple and the soldiers at every entrance to the palace. Verse 15, when she cries out, it says, But Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds and the officers of the host and said to them, Have her forth without the ranges, and him that, followed, and him that follows her kill with the sword. For the priest has said, let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. And so they laid hands on her, and she went by the way by which the horses came into the king's house, and there she was slain. So he says, take her off the temple platform. Don't kill her here. Don't defile the temple. Anyone who answers her call, treason, treason, they answer the call, defend her, kill him. Well, when he tells them to go arrest her, she runs. But they catch her along the back path back to the palace near the horse, horse gate. Remember, that's where one of the 
five parts was guarding. So now she's got soldiers behind her and soldiers in front of her, and there's nowhere to run. And they just execute her right on the spot. There's no fanfare, no public execution. She's just dead. Like her son, like her brother-in-law, her life is snuffed out like that. The whole family of Ahab had spent so much time scheming and planning and killing others to secure their power. But none of that could prepare them for an almighty God who opposed them. I hear people sometimes talk about giving God a piece of their mind or wrestling with God for control of their lives. No, God's not going to control my life. But I'm reminded of the fact that when one man wrestled with God all night, all it took was the Lord to just touch his thigh and he was done for. All he had to do is touch your hip once and it's over. The fight's done. All God need do is speak the word and your life is forfeit. Pharaoh fought God tooth and nail, didn't he? But it was only God's mercy that allowed him to survive. And once God removed that mercy, the waves of the Red Sea crashed upon him and he was just gone. The Assyrian commander who ranted to Israel that no God could deliver them from his army wiped his army out with one angel in one evening, gone. How about Acts chapter 9, verse 5? Saul, Saul, why did he persecute me? All of Saul's plans to wipe out Christianity stop simply by the presence of Jesus. Jesus just has to make his presence known and it's over. I mean, what good are those letters that you have, Paul, you can't even see? You can't even walk. You can't do anything now. What good are those letters? What good is that zeal now that you've been blinded supernaturally by God? In Proverbs chapter 21, verses 30 and 31, the wise Solomon says this. He says, there is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. You can decide that we're going to plan, we're going to plot, we're going to go after God, we're going to go after His plan for my life, whatever. I'm not going to let it happen. I'm going to let Him be in charge. Good luck. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9, the prophet says something very similar. Isaiah 45, verse 9, the prophet says, Woe unto him that strives with his maker. Whoa, the idea is bad things are going to happen if you're going to fight with your maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. In other words, take on somebody your own size. Like if you're weighing out, like what do I want to do with my life? I'm going to take on the Lord. You might want to stay in your, stay in your weight class. Let the potsherd take on the other potsherds of the earth, he says. Shall the clay say to him that fashions it? What are you making? Or your work, he has no hands. You know, we do this all the time. We, you know, the God, you know, he's working in our lives. We're like, what are you doing, man? You know, do, do your hands even work? We get mad at him. We get frustrated. Why would you allow this? Why would you do this? You know, and it's like, think about what you're doing for a second. He's the one who's got the, he's got all the power. You know, it's like, you know, critiquing the guy who's cutting your hair. It's a bad idea right? Seriously. Like somebody, you know, like if you're going like Disney, you get your face painted, you're like, that's where you just compliment because you don't want to end up with whatever on your face. When you're going, you know, you're going to go to have a doctor appointment and you're like, we're going to, you know, put you under anesthesia and we're going to do some work on you. Last thing you want to say is not like something like, you know, I've had 10 better doctors than you. <laughs> Wait till you're up and out of it to do that. And all those illustrations and examples are nothing compared to the fact that we have a maker. You know, he's the one who's making the pot of our lives. Well, this is truly it for Ahab's line. There's nobody left, not a man or a woman. So these chapters serve as a living testimony that we can't fight the Lord and win. Yeah, my, my plan of attack against the Lord might, might seem to go well for a while, maybe even years but it will always end in a catastrophic loss. 
Well, with Ahab's corruption finally gone from both Israel and Judah, God's people can start over with the Lord. And Jehoiada determines to do it, do this the right way as well. Look at verse 16. Well, verse 17, I'm sorry. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people. And then there's a colon there between the king also and the people. He made two deals here. Jehoiada instigates two covenant renewals, one between the Lord, the king, and the people, and then one between the king and the people. And this is really cool because this gives us a blueprint for, for how do a people who've gone astray make things right with God? How do you do that? Well, he says it right here. First off, you need to make a fresh commitment to him. Remember, this guy, whoever is the guy that's writing it, he is writing it to the exiles in Babylon. And the exiles in Babylon complained that God had broken his promise to them and he had cast them off. He'd abandoned them. And so the writer here is reminding them, he's like, guys, your situation that you're in right now is not the first time things have been bad for our people. And there was a way back for our people in the past, which means there's a way back for you too. Recommit yourself to your part of the covenant. You made a covenant with God. Recommit yourself to your part. Because the truth is, God never fails to keep his side of the promise. He never fails to keep his side of the promise. He remained faithful to Judah and Israel despite their toleration of wicked kings and despite their idolatry. He honored his covenant both with the people and with David. And then when God's people violated their part of the agreement, God didn't just cast them off. He sent prophets to warn them and to call them back. And then when they didn't listen, God disciplined them. The exiles were no different. They were just now in the discipline part, which is never fun. But just like the people during Joash's time, the exiles needed to answer God's call to come back. They needed to recommit themselves freshly to their side of the agreement. Isn't it wonderful to know that no matter how far we go and how bad things have gotten because of God's discipline, that we can come home? It's wonderful. Isn't it wonderful to know that the faithful father is out looking and waiting for his prodigals to welcome them with open arms? The enemy had lied to the exiles. He told them, God's done with you. It's over. But God isn't like us, is he? His love is an everlasting love, and his mercies are new every morning. He longs for us to repent and come home. He longs for us to come to the place where we decide, I want to be the Lord's people again. I want to be your person again. Well, not only does he instigate this renewal of a fresh commitment to the Lord between the people, the king, and the Lord, but he instigates a refreshed commitment of the people to the line of David and of the king's commitment to lead the people in a godly fashion. You see, the people should never have tolerated a wicked woman like Adaliah to be queen. And Joash's forefathers should never have strayed so far from their responsibility to serve as kings in obedience to the Lord. And the same holds true for the exiles. God wanted to bless them, but they would need to not just realign themselves with the Lord, but they would need to realign themselves with one another. If you read the book of Jeremiah, or maybe when we get to the end of Second Kings, you're going to see all the turmoil that was going on in Judah when Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked. When you read about in 70 AD, when the Romans came to lay siege to Jerusalem, the Israelis were holding out very well. They, they went up against, I think it's four legions or three legions, and they were actually repelling them with no problem. They had to bring in more legions. But even then, the Romans never attacked. The reason the Romans finally attacked was because there was factions inside the city who were arguing and fighting each other, and they started to see smoke inside Jerusalem, and they realized they're fighting each other. Let's go attack. So they needed to remember that they're in this together. They needed to recommit themselves to treating one another correctly as as well. And the same holds true for us when we come home to the Lord. It's not just the Lord we need to make things right with. When you walk away from the Lord, it's very likely there will be other relationships you need to repair as well. And so if you've come back to the Lord, but you're still not really experiencing His blessings, is it it possible that 
you haven't made the effort to repair some of the past relationships that you've violated. Well, the people show the seriousness of their fresh commitment by by making this refreshed commitment to each other, to the Lord, and then they show their seriousness by dealing with the idolatry in Jerusalem. Verse 18, it says, And all the people of the land, they went into the house of Baal, and they broke it down. It says, His altars, His images, they broke it in pieces thoroughly, and they slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. They demolished the temple to Baal. They did it so thoroughly that all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put it back together again. I find it interesting that this pagan priest is given by name. I mean, the fact that the exiles, he gave a name they would recognize shows how prevalent Baal worship had become in Judah because this is hundreds of years later that they're reading this. And then, oh, Matan, I remember hearing stories about that guy. He was awful. Everyone knew this guy's dark place in Judah's history. But you know, when we backslide, there's almost always an idol problem somewhere, isn't there? You see, if we're falling into pornography, the problem's just not the pornography. It's the pride that makes you think you can keep your phone in your room without falling prey to temptation. It's not just the fact that you have a temper. It's the refusal to take time each day to be thankful and to learn more of God's gentle love for you and for others. If we're going to be faithful to keep our fresh recommitments to the Lord, the idols have to be dealt with. And so I ask you tonight, what's keeping you from prayer or time with God's people or from doing what's necessary to plug the holes that have made you vulnerable to the enemy? What are you doing about it? Are you willing to to part with that idol? Because if not, you will continue to struggle no matter how genuine you are in your recommitment to the Lord. Our enemy is so vilely, so wicked. We come back to God for a fresh start, but then we fall, and then the enemy accuses us of not being genuine. And if you start buying that lie, you ignore the real problem and you give up. When the real problem is you got this idol in your life that's just standing there going, ah. And the enemy is like, you didn't really mean it. You didn't really mean it. And the Lord's like, no, just get rid of the idol. Get rid of that thing in your life that's just weighing you down. Remember when Peter told the Lord, all these guys will abandon you, Jesus, but not me. I'm ready to die for you. Peter meant every word that he spoke. But then he fell. You know what's interesting? When Jesus restores Peter, he doesn't ask him. He goes, did you really mean it, Peter? You said it, but did you really mean it? Because I'm not sure. That's not what he said. He said to him, asked a question. He goes, are you still devoted to me more than all these are? Now, Jesus, of course, he could have been talking about the fish. Are you more devoted to me than you are to the fish? You know, your whole career. I told you to leave the fish and follow me, and here you are back fishing again. Could have been talking about that. He could have been talking about something else, but the point's still the same. Are, Peter, you're still willing to make the lofty commitment to me? Jesus didn't ask him if he was genuine. What Jesus asked him was, are you the same person you were when you made that statement? Are you that same person still? In other words, he says, Peter, did you learn anything? And Peter had. Peter makes just as much a commitment. If you've heard this before, you know it, but in John 21, when it says, Jesus said, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these? That, that word love, Jesus uses as the word agape. Are you deeply committed, unconditionally, unwaveringly devoted to me still, Peter? And Peter responds by using a different word for love, phileo. Lord, you know I'm your friend. Jesus asked him again. He goes, Peter, you you still all in for me? And Peter goes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. And the third time, Jesus said, Peter, are you my friend? And that's what broke Peter's heart. And he goes, Lord, you know me better than I know me and you know I'm your friend. You see, that's the whole reason Peter fell. Jesus said to him, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter goes, no way. You don't know me better than I know me. I know me. So Jesus asked him the question, Peter, you still think you know you better than I know you? And Peter's answer is clear. He goes, no. 
I know you know all things. I know I don't. But because I know you know all things, you know I'm your friend. He was just as genuine, minted just as much both times. The difference was the second Peter had dealt with the idol, that pride idol. He had dealt with that. And he had yielded that to the Lord. Stop letting the enemy distract you from the real problem. Stop letting the enemy discourage you so badly that you just give up. I promise you, deal with the idol and you'll see a change. Amen? We got to finish up. End of verse 18, and the priest appointed, the priest is Jehoiada, he appointed officers over the house of the Lord, and he took the rulers over hundreds and the captains and the guard and all the people of the land, and they brought down the king from the house of the Lord, from the temple, and they came by the way of the gate of the guard, so they came through the back, the closest part to the temple, so the king wouldn't be exposed, into the king's house, into the palace, and then they sat him on the throne of the kings. So, if it looks like Jehoiada is the one who's in charge, it's because he is. Joash is seven years old. He doesn't know what to do. Jehoiada will be the real power behind the throne for a while, so he's the one giving orders on how to get things back on track. And he says, let's get him to the palace as quickly as possible. Let's make sure we leave some officers here at the temple just in case anyone is loyal to the queen hears about this and they decide to ransack the temple. We're going to leave some soldiers here. The rest, let's get him to the palace by the shortest route. And they get him there, and once he's on the throne, all is restored. The takeover is complete. And so verses 20 and 21, and all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was in quiet, and they slew Adaliah with the sword beside the king's house, seven years old when jo- was Joash when he began, Jehoash when he began to reign. So thankfully there's no civil war this time, no holdouts for the queen, everyone stands united behind King Joash, and as a result it says there's quiet, which means there was peace in Jerusalem. I wish we could have joy and peace (laughs) in our nation. But we won't until we recommit ourselves to the Lord. That's just a fact. In these last two verses here, verses 20 and 21, we see God's faithfulness to two promises, two very different promises. God promised Ahab, I'm going to wipe your line out. And with Adaliah gone, there's no one left to carry on Ahab's name. God kept his promise. But number two, God also promised David he would preserve his line. And despite the enemy's mighty efforts to wipe out the line of David, God preserves it. God keeps all of his promises, both for blessing and for judgment. He is faithful. And so when we get to chapter 12, we'll see how long Israel remains faithful to their side. Let's all stand. Lord, we do pray for peace and joy in our time. We know you can do that. But Lord, I think probably the greater lesson for us here is, of course, wear our hearts with you. Lord, maybe if we've been away or backslidden and just, or maybe just not valuing your word and, and the time with you, and maybe we've been missing out on some of the blessings you want for us. Or we just make that fresh commitment to you to, Lord, be people of your word. Lord, to recommit ourselves to our part of the the bargain, to trust you, to follow you, to obey you. And then, Lord, I pray that you would show us if there's any idols in our life that need to come down. Lord, we not buy into the lie of the enemy who would say, you're just worthless, You, you don't love God, you don't care, just give up. Instead, that we would, I just need to deal with the idol. Show us if there's any there, Lord, and we give it to you tonight. We name it in our hearts right now. We say, Lord, this is an idol right now, and it just needs to go. And then give us a strength to follow through, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.